Hello. Good evening. The unfolding of our, our path of practice is described and, and seen in a number of different ways. Um, one could see it as the, uh, a deepening understanding, plumbing the depths of the Four Noble Truths. And this truth of the suffering and the cause of suffering, the end of suffering and the path leading to that understanding. And from this, there's the, the Eightfold Noble Path and we can see our practice as the uh, full understanding of this, this path leading to freedom, to liberation. Sometimes it's described as the uh, progress of insight, stages of insight and of stages of enlightenment. In some traditions, there's the realization of one's Buddha nature here and now in this moment, realizing the great natural perfection of mind. And there's another way that uh, the path is described, that it's seen is, that, is as the, uh, the perfecting or ripening of what are called the paramis or paramita in Sanskrit. And I'm sure most of you are at least somewhat familiar with the list of the paramis, these 10 noble or beautiful qualities of heart and mind that, that it's said that the Buddha perfected over countless lifetimes. And these are spoken about mainly in what are called the Jataka stories, which are um, teaching fables, you could say. They're stories of the, the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva in uh, lifetimes before taking birth and becoming the Buddha, often born as an animal or a prince or different, different kinds of uh, births and then perfecting uh, what are called the paramis. So I thought I'd read the list of those to start the talk tonight. Even though most of us know, are familiar with them, we may not keep them all in mind. So these are the 10, ten paramis. The first one is dana or generosity, sila or ethical conduct, nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom, Virya, energy, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana is resolve or resolution, metta, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. So we could say that, that in a way the culmination of the path or the quality of the awakened heart, the awakened mind, is one in which these noble factors, these noble qualities of heart have been fully developed, they've been brought to perfection. So in essence, we could say a mind that is no longer under the sway of greed, hatred, and delusion, when this is the case, these, when these three unwholesome roots are no longer dominating the mind, then the paramis are there. They're a, what we find as a natural and very wholesome response to life. And at that time, one is no longer relating to life through habitual patterns that are born of these, uh, you could say, defilements of mind or misunderstandings of the 
three unwholesome roots. And so in a way, we could see our entire path of practice, the development and cultivation of these paramis as a strengthening of these wholesome qualities. So in other words, we're choosing the things that lead to more happiness, peace, and freedom in our lives. And conversely, we're letting go of and abandoning the things that lead to more unhappiness, that lead to suffering. And there's a really beautiful kind of circular relationship that naturally arises in this. You know, as we pay greater attention to how we are living, and as our practice deepens and unfolds, then we have the ability to make wise choices. This naturally increases. And as we make more and more wise choices, then our attention to how we live and our relationship to the world is refined. It becomes more subtle and clear. And this leads to greater wisdom, which in turn leads to the ability to make more wise choices in our lives. And so this, there's this cycle of reinforcing what is wholesome that naturally arises in this process. This is a quotation from uh, Sayada Ujotika, who's a, a Burmese, very interesting Burmese teacher that I had the uh, fortune to meet on a couple of occasions. He's quite reclusive and doesn't teach uh, very much. And, but this is a quotation from a book of his. He said, freedom really means knowing what is useful, knowing what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, and choosing what is wholesome, good, and right, and doing it wholeheartedly. And sometimes we could find the idea of cultivating or perfecting these qualities a little hard to relate to. You know, we might hear this list of paramis and see it as a checklist of qualities that we, we don't have, or if we do have them, they're not, they're not very good. <laughs> we could find it disheartening, perhaps, as though sometimes I think we feel as though we're born with a certain amount of, say, kindness or patience or energy. And, and then that's just the way it is, you know, it's kind of our luck of the draw. I think sometimes we see it that way. Or we may s compare ourselves to others and feel, well, I'll never be as generous or kind as, as this other person. As though we'll never really measure up or that it's just, it's too big of a project, you know, to, to undertake somehow beyond us. But, you know, our hearts, our minds are, are capable of change. And if we bring the power of our attention and our intention, we bring our mindfulness to bear in our lives, then, then change does happen. And if this wasn't the case, there wouldn't be any point in coming to a retreat like this, certainly. But sometimes we don't notice that we are strengthening and, and cultivating these qualities so much of the time, we're focused in a, in a kind of narrow way. It can be that we are focused on developing concentration and keeping our mindfulness continuous through the day. And we miss the fact that throughout the day, just by showing up, we're cultivating a lot of really good, beautiful qualities of heart 
They're strengthened through our willingness to show up and begin again, yet again. You know, how many times do we begin again over the course of a day? That's all we do all day long is begin again sometimes. But there's a lot of really good, we're strengthening patience and determination and resolve and perseverance and many beautiful qualities. No matter what's going on, even if it feels like our practice is in a shambles. So it's good to, to reflect on this, especially when, when the going gets rough. You know, to bring to mind the fact that maybe this whole retreat is about strengthening and cultivating patience and that that's one of these things that one brings to perfection along the way and it's worth doing that. That's a good use of a retreat. So tonight I'm going to talk about uh, the first one of these on the list of these paramis that I read, which is dana, usually translated as generosity or giving. And it's the first one of these. And in, it's said that the Buddha taught uh, this progression of dana, generosity, sila, or conduct, and then bhavana, mind development, that this was one of the ways that the path is described as the training in this threefold training in dana, sila, bhavana. And it was spot, he taught this way, especially for lay people, it's said. And so generosity and our ethical conduct are seen as foundations. Bhavana is, means mind development, you could say. It's, it's the meditation practices, the wisdom practices that we're doing here. But generosity, the practice of generosity and, and uh, ethical conduct are seen as the foundations upon which this mind development rests. And in Buddhist countries, you see uh, often children are really taught. You see how this is taught, how that is really a tradition there. And you see very young children, their parents bring them out when they're very young and, and have them helping to offer alms to the monks and nuns that might come by or going to the, uh, to the monastery or to the nunnery and helping going the whole family and the very little ones come and they, they actually physically get involved in the offering of things. So children are taught this at a very young age there. It's really beautiful to see this kind of training and uh, that this is held as such a, an important part, foundation for practice, for understanding. So Donna and Sila are seen as the foundations upon which the whole practice rests. And you know, we might be able to see this pretty easily and cl clearly in terms of our conduct, in terms of ethical conduct and how by keeping the precepts and having a commitment to non-harming, to living carefully and harmlessly, how this results in a mind that's free of remorse and worry and agitation. And so greater calm and tranquility and happiness arise from that. And these are proximate causes for things like concentration to arise. This is a list uh, of how sila functions in this way from the Buddha. He said, virtue, sila, ethical conduct, has non-remorse as its benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. 
Joy has serenity as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. Concentration has insightful understanding as its benefit and reward. Insight has non-attachment as its benefit and reward. Non-attachment has liberation as its benefit and reward. In this way, virtue leads step by step to the highest peace. So this is pretty clear to us, I think. We can see this natural way that ethical conduct serves us. But it might be less, a little less uh, clear or obvious in the case of the practice of generosity. Why would that be seen as so fundamental? It's fundamental even to sila in that dana sila bhavana model. It's first on the list of those three. Why would that be a foundation? But the practice of giving, of generosity, is the expression in the world of non-greed, you could say. So in essence, it functions as a very direct and tangible counter to the forces of greed and clinging in the mind. So when we practice generosity, we strengthen the wholesome mental factor of non-greed. And this becomes a force for liberation in our lives. And it goes straight to the heart of the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. You know, the Buddha taught this, that's the force of clinging, of grasping, that keeps us bound, that is the cause of suffering. But the acts of giving, they function as an antidote to this. As we practice giving and practice generosity, we're learning to let go very directly. We're practicing non-grasping and non-clinging. And this, this erodes our self-cherishing habits of mind. And through this practice, we cultivate care and connectedness with others. We directly touch the lives of others. You know, in our culture, so often our status is measured by all that we've accumulated, you know, wealth and possessions and all the rest of it. That's often seen as the sort of sign of a of status or of an accomplished, a full, meaningful life is having a lot of stuff and a big house to put it all in. But this practice of giving away is a whole different way of measuring wealth, inner wealth, you could say. And through this practice, our minds become less fixated, less, they loosen up, they're not so tight. There's more pliability, flexibility in there. And this is a great aid to meditation. And in the suttas, the Buddha praised, throughout the suttas, he praised the power, the beauty, and the benefits of the practice of giving. This is a quote from the, a collection called the Itivutaka. He said, if beings knew as I know the benefits of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. And in the Anguttara Nikaya, there's this quotation. 
Even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond with the thought, may whatever animals live here feed on this, benefit from this, that would be a great source of merit. Over the years, I've had a lot of opportunity to travel and live in South and Southeast Asia, and especially in the Buddhist countries there, especially in Burma, Thailand, and, and in India as well. Since oh, 1997, I've gone almost every winter to help run a retreat in Upper Burma at a monastery called Chaswa Monastery. And I was there, I lived, spent some time living, uh, had the fortune to, good fortune to live as a monk for a time in Burma on more than one occasion actually. And done a lot of pilgrimage travel in that part of the world. And in, in the Buddhist countries where I've spent time, there's a way that the practice of giving really permeates the culture in a way that we don't see so much in the West. There's an understanding and a valuing of giving, of dana as a practice that's really lovely and, and very inspiring to see and to be in, in that, in the thick of that. And that's not to say that there's not generosity in the West. There is, of course, and there are abundant examples here of incredible generosity, huge outpourings of, of relief when natural disasters have struck. You know, the United States is one of the, I think it's the biggest, we're a rich country, biggest donor to relief efforts worldwide. And both at home and abroad and, and these incredible, um, you know, foundations that exist, these aid foundations that do a lot of really great work, good work worldwide. But in the West, these kinds of offerings, the way generosity is often manifests is in, in the form of uh, kinds of philanthropy and volunteering, volunteerism, donations to relief efforts and things like that. That's the main form it tends to take here. And in, in uh, Buddhist countries, it's held in a somewhat different way in that it's seen as an integral part of the spiritual path in terms of its function, foundation function that I spoke about already, and also in terms of, of its meritorious benefit. And we don't really think of merit so much. Most of us didn't grow up with an idea of merit, of there being a meritorious benefit to our wholesome actions. The Pali word for merit is punya, and when we chant the uh, Metta Sutta at the end, idamno punyam bhagam punya. That's that same, comes from the same root as that. And that's that dedication of the merit of, of the chanting. And this is a concept that's very central to Buddhism that can be very misunderstood sometimes in the West, can seem foreign to us. I know for myself, when I first encountered this, I had a very strong and quite negative reaction against it as though it implied that I would act in a generous or good way in order to reap some kind of reward or as though there were some you know heavenly bank account that was storing my my good good stuff 
and I didn't want anything to do with it. I remember I, this is a long time ago now, I had volunteered to uh, help set up and, and run a rains, the rains retreat for a group of monks. Um, it was Ajahn Amaro and three other monks in California. It was before they started Abhayagiri Monastery there, some of you may know. And I, um, it was before that property was donated and we were, they were gonna stay for the rains there in California and we set up a place uh, beautiful spot in the hills, north, northern California. And so I did a lot of work. I made, finished a kitchen and put in water lines and stayed there the whole time cooking and serving them for this period. And um, I remember people telling me, oh, so much good merit from this. And, and I didn't, I, I, you know, I didn't want that because it seemed to imply that I was doing this for that, and that wasn't how I, I understood it. But when we really understand this concept of merit, what it really means is that we acknowledge that, that wholesome, skillful actions in our lives, that these have a power, and that this power that arises from these actions extends beyond the scope and the occasion of, of the deed itself. So in essence, it's an understanding that these wholesome actions bring positive beneficial results and that this goodness informs not only the present, but that it extends into the future as well. And built into this is the understanding that we can also dedicate this merit for our own benefit and welfare and liberation and for that of others as well. So it doesn't imply that we undertake wholesome practice like giving, for example, like generosity, because we expect something in return. But rather it's that we acknowledge and really delight in this goodness and the power and the beauty that results from wholesome actions. And we also understand that we can consciously dedicate this, that this be for our own benefit, for our liberation, for that of others. We can share this with all beings. One of my teachers uh, in Burma, Sayadat Ulakana, who's the abbot of the monastery where I've been helping with the, the retreat in, at Chaswa Monastery in Upper Burma. I remember him insisting that people who offered the meal at the monastery, that they dedicate the merit. He said, you must do this. He saw this as very essential and important that they dedicate the merit for their own liberation at least, and, and also for all beings. So when we do this, when we dedicate the goodness, the merit of our positive actions, we bring to mind our highest aspirations. May this be the cause and condition for my awakening, for example, and may this be of benefit to others. So we bring to mind our highest aspiration and we connect with others through our wishes for their, their welfare, for their happiness. When this offering and, and the merit actually increases through the generosity of our sharing. So we give it away and we get more, even more by the giving away of it. And when this practice of given, when it flows from this connection to our highest aspiration and our wishes for the well-being, the happiness, the liberation of others, 
then we see how this practice is, it's like a, it's a natural expression of goodwill, of, of loving kindness. These things interconnect, intertwine. And when love and goodwill are strong in our heart, then the intention of offering and sharing arises quite spontaneously. So they cycle around and strengthen one another. So as I mentioned, I've spent quite a lot of time living in, in Burma and uh, managing that retreat. I mentioned in the winter times, I also work with a couple of small humanitarian aid organizations there. And every time I go, every time I go to Burma, I'm struck by the, the kindness and generosity of the people, uh, even those who are very poor, which is almost everybody in Burma. It's a very poor country. Anywhere you go, anytime you visit, people are always giving you things. And you have to be careful if you admire something, someone, you'll take it home with you if, if you admire someone in someone's home. And there's the tradition in these countries of the teachings are offered for free. The Dhamma is seen as priceless, so no price is put on it. And so when you go to the meditation centers and the monasteries to, to practice there, there's no charge. They're run entirely on dana. One of the main ways this support is offered is in the form of meal dana, which we're seeing meal dana happening more and more in the West. It's quite beautiful to see the meal dana board and to see that very direct support. This is so common at the meditation centers in Burma. And if you go at certain times of the year, you know, you can have a hard time finding an empty spot to offer a meal. If you go during the rains period, the, the summer, fall, rainy season, when a lot of people go, uh, it, the, the meal times, all the donnas can be filled up. Uh, I know, uh, um, I remember Guy Armstrong, who was here teaching in the first half of this retreat, saying that he had gone to a monastery in Lower Burma for the rains and uh, he ordained as a monk at that time. So before his ordination, he wanted to uh, give some dana to the office to offer a meal during the, the rainy period, during the time he would be there. And, and all of the, there wasn't, they were all taken already. And this, there are 800 people there uh, at that time. It gets, it's a huge number of people to try and feed. And it was all from pretty much all locals who were sponsoring the meals. So he had to sponsor a meal at a different time because he, he couldn't do one. They were all taken. So there's, it's a beautiful tradition there. I spent uh, most of a year living as a monk on one occasion and, and again on other occasions. And uh, monks and nuns in Theravada Buddhism, their monk is actually a misnomer. They're alms mendicants. It means you depend on your livelihood, on your meal every day from alms food that is actually offered every day. You can't keep food over night. So there's this, you're very tied into the lay community there. So the monks and the nuns provide a, a refuge and the teachings and a place, a haven in the world. And, and in return, they depend on the lay community for their direct support. It's 
alms round, the alms daily alms round, that's right livelihood for monks. And there's a lot of rules for how one does it. You can't, you can't ask for anything. You can't go up to someone's house. You can stand in the road outside. And if they notice you and feel inclined to put something in your bowl, then you can accept that. And I, I went on alms round and, you know, sometimes people just plop a blob of rice in your bowl because that's what you do when a monk shows up. But some people took it, took the practice, uh, approached it with such grace and care and made these offerings with such, such dedication and with such an expression of faith. And um, it was so obviously a, a practice for them. It was very humbling and, and very beautiful to be on the receiving end of that. There was a period of time where I was living only on, on my alms food, one meal a day from what I collected in my bowl, which is one of the dutanga, the austerities that the Buddha said was okay to do. And so I would take the same route every day at about the same time and collect food. And some days it was only rice. A lot of days it was lots of other stuff. It's a, an interesting practice to be content with what one has given. Remember I had rice and one ball of jaggery one day. So, so there was one uh, household that I went by every day and there was a young woman who used to offer alms every day to a group of us and then to me by myself when I was going, going by myself on alms round. And, and she was quite thin and didn't look well, uh, but she came out to the gate every day and offered the food very, with a lot of um, care. And over time, she grew weaker and, and then her family members were helping her to walk out and were supporting her and she would continuing to offer the food. This was over a period of months. And then uh, she got too weak to come to the fence. And so they, they if you're invited into the into the yard, to the house, you can go. And so they said, please come. And, and she would be sitting on a chair, um, which traditionally you would never sit down to offer alms. It's not seen as respectful, you'd always stand, but she was too weak. And so I would crouch down low so she could make an offering. And, um, you know, she got weaker and weaker, but um, she still kept, they kept bringing us in so she could offer the meal. And, and then one day she wasn't there. And uh, I found out that she had, um, she died just before then, you know, the day or two before. And she was 26, I think, and had cancer and had died. Um, but um, as long as she had enough strength, she, she was moved, felt uh, that she wanted to try to, to do this. The merit of that was seen as so beneficial and good. There's a uh, part of the chanting that one does in monasteries is a reflection on the qualities of the Sangha and the way it ends that part of the, there's a reflection on the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And the last line in the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha is anuttaram punyaketam lokasa, 
which means uh, they give occasion for great goodness, for incomparable, incomparable goodness to arise in the world. This is one of the qualities said of the ordained Sangha. And I used to kind of, I chanted it for a while at times and I didn't really know what that might mean. But at this time when I was living there and going on alms round, I, there was this um, very direct for me understanding of at least one aspect of that, that I made it possible for this great goodness of practicing generosity in a very direct way for people to do that practice. So that was one way that I related to that. And this incredible lineage of that practice, people have been going on alms round every day since way before the time of the Buddha. It was a tradition, but certainly since that time. But sometimes it brought up a lot in me as the recipient of, of offerings. You know, the other half of the equation of giving is receiving. And it can be really interesting and, and I think very useful to explore our patterns and conditioning around receiving offerings. You know, I would be receiving, I knew even though I was living as a monk and had given up, you know, given up my money and everything but my robes and bowl for that period of time. But I knew I had resources that there were those who would come to my support if I really needed it. I had resources that I could fall back on. That a lot of the people who were offering things to me, they didn't have that. And at times it, it was, was difficult for me to be receiving. And sometimes it is hard for us to receive things. But for me, there was the reflection that, you know, these, these offerings were not made to me personally. I mean, on one level, yes, they, the people knew they were feeding me and others. But these offerings were, were offerings to the Triple Gem. They were offerings to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the robes that I was wearing were a symbol of that. And so that's what people were offering to. It was much bigger than my life. But we can sometimes notice that we have habits around receiving, habits of mind, you know, unconscious attitudes, you know, a kind of, well, thanks, but no thanks, some kind of dismissive way that we respond, or feeling, well, that we don't deserve it, as though we're somehow not worthy, or even a sense of some embarrassment, oh, well, kind of embarrassed to be the recipient of offerings. But actually, there's a more beautiful way to receive things where we rejoice in the offering. We delight in the joy that the one who's giving the gift in the wholesome, skillful, beneficial power of their offering. And we connect with this. There's an ebb and flow of life in this giving and receiving that we correct, connect to. It's said that the practice of giving brings happiness in three times. And there's the happiness that comes before we give when we think about doing it. 
And there's the happiness during the actual offering, the happiness that comes to us when we actually make an offering. And then afterwards, when we reflect on our wholesome action, on the, on the skillful, beneficial actions that we've done, And it really is useful to reflect on, on our good actions. And this is a practice that the Buddha recommended throughout the teachings. It's seen as a very wholesome thing to do. It's not that we're trying to boost our egos or somehow puff ourselves up. You know, look how good I am, I'm making these offerings. Or It's not, not in that way, but we recognize, we acknowledge the power of our our good actions and the wholesome mind states and the wisdom that is there in our hearts. Sometimes it can be really easy to see all of our not so beautiful sides. Our unwholesome actions stick out quite glaringly at times. our unwholesome mindset states, you know, we see those all the time. But it's really good and, and really useful and healthy to bring our goodness to mind as well. Hmm. One time when I was managing that retreat I mentioned in, in Upper Burma at Chaswa Monastery, I was, uh, I was the manager and I needed to give a, a talk about Donna at the end of the retreat. That was one of my duties. And, and there's a monk up there, Rebecca mentioned in an earlier talk, there's a monk we've nicknamed the Happy Sayadaw. He's, I think he's 92 or so now. And he looks, he's so thin, he's like a walking skeleton <laughs> almost. He's bones and some skin and very little else left there. But I think he's the happiest being I have ever met. Um, he's one of these people that it's worth it to me to fly halfway around the world to sit with him for an hour. And so they were going to go visit him. And they said, oh, come with us. We're going to go see Yatong Sayadaw, the happy Sayadaw. And I said, well, I, I want to think about what I'm going to say to the the yogis at the retreat, I, I don't think I'll go. And they said, oh, you don't need to think about it. You can talk about Donna in your sleep. Come, come. So I said, well, okay, I'll come, but, but I get to ask Sayadaw a question. You have to you know, make sure I get a chance to ask him a question. So I went in, uh, we went in and paid respects and we're talking. And I said, Sayadaw, I need to give a talk to the retreat about uh, Donna and it's, it's not so much a practice that we have in the West. It's not so much in our understanding. And so do you have any advice what I should say? And he, there was a bowl of oranges near him, near where he was sitting and he started throwing them at me. Uh, and then he was waving his arms around, which he tends to do. He said, Donna, this is Donna. He pointing at everything around and throwing oranges at me and saying, all of this is Donna. He said, without Donna, we wouldn't be here. Everything here is because of Donna. He goes, he's, he's, uh, he's great. <laughs> and you know, I was, I was reflecting on that 
you know, and I thought, well, of course, there at the monastery, his lodging and the whole building, all of that, the monastery is built from donations. That how, that's how places like that come into being. But then I was thinking, well, personally, you know, for me, there's so much in my life that was the result of and depended on the kindness and generosity of others. And, and we can all think about how this is true in our lives. You know, there's so much in our lives that, you know, just to be here at the retreat, all of the people who've made it possible, family members or all the different things that, all the different ways that, that the practice of generosity supports us all. Sometimes the results of a, what seems like a small and at the time seemingly insignificant offering an act, small little act of generosity can have very far-reaching consequences. The, um, there's a story that a teacher named Stephen Smith who started uh, the retreat there at Chaswa Monastery. He had gone up to the Sagaing Hills where it, that area is called the Sagaing Hills and he, he'd gone there to do a retreat and he and another monk, a friend of ours, was staying in a cave. It was actually a cave. They fix up kind of fairly nice cave as caves go there, I guess. Um, but he was staying in one that was um, attached to a nunnery next door to the Chaswa Monastery. And um, there were some uh, there was some construction going on and. In rural Burma, well, all over Burma, um, construction projects, a lot of the labor is done by young women who carry, they work as masons and they carry bricks and loads of cement, these piles of bricks on their heads and these pans of cement. And there was a young woman there who was working on this construction project and one day she uh, offered a Coke, a can of Coke uh, to, to Stephen. And, um, that would have represented three days wages at the, because it was an imported thing. So it was way more than local sodas and they weren't making very much money. So it was a, a lot of, <laughs> relatively lot of money for her to make this offering. And, um, and as a result of, of that offering, which was very inspiring to him at the time, then he got together talking to Sayada Ulakana, the abbot of the monastery there, and they started a thing called the Metadana Project, which I help uh, to work with in, when I go there. And they also decided to, to start the annual retreat there at the monastery. And, and so we've, you know, we've built a new school in the village. And we, there's a hospital that we've supported with a lot of projects there. And we support three nunneries nearby. And there's an acupuncture training project that's uh, growing and growing. So it's had a huge impact on the lives of the villagers there. But it all started with this very modest offering of this can of Coke. Mm. I'm not going to get through this talk. <laughs> um, sometimes we, we think, you know, when we think of giving, we think somehow we'll be diminished by it as though somehow we'll be, we'll have less, we'll be lessened by giving things away. 
But really, we see that the, the opposite of this is very, is really what happens, that we're enriched by giving. Because the practice of generosity, it cultivates in our hearts a sense of inner abundance, you could say. This feeling that we have enough to be able to share that's not based on any kind of objective criteria of our material wealth. A sense of inner abundance doesn't have to do with how much money or how many things we have to give away. You know, there are plenty of well-to-do people, very wealthy people sometimes who have, who find it difficult to give and they, they may feel a sense of inner poverty, you could say. And they cling to what they have and, and conversely there are those who are incredibly poor but have this sense of inner abundance quite highly developed even those who have seem to have little or nothing to spare. I've seen this so much in my travels that often it seems to be the poorest ones who are the most generous. Hmm. Now how do we connect to this feeling of inner abundance? This idea of having a sense of inner plenty, inner wealth. One way I think we can connect to this is to ask ourselves in any moment, right now, what do I really need to be happy in this moment? What would it take for me to feel content and happy? You know, we're so conditioned by our culture to feel that we'll, we never have enough and our whole economy, certainly the world of advertising seems to be based on this predicated on this strategy of convincing us that we're in a constant state of lack. You know, we're incomplete now, but if we just get a new whatever it is, you can fill in the blank, then we'll be, then we'll be happy. You know, we're bombarded with images and messages that their sole purpose seems to be to convince us that we really need maybe a certain standard of living or certain kinds of conditions or surroundings or certain things, a certain kind of body or whatever, all of it, in order to feel happy and contented. You know, we see the beautiful happy people and we're not one of them, but if we get that thing, we will be. But is it really true? I mean, we can all think of times in our lives when ways that our happiness and contentment didn't depend on our surroundings or on having certain things. I remember once I was practicing in India, in Bodhgaya, and I was living in the, the Thai Vihara, the Thai monastery there, with a re, at a retreat, and I, I was sleeping with, the men slept underneath the meditation hall, and in a, you couldn't call it a basement, it was a, place. <laughs> it was a space under there. You couldn't stand up straight. And we had these straw mats and mosquito nets, but it was um, austere. And, uh, you know, I was there practicing. That was my, you know, my bed was there and the food was okay. My health was not so good as it sometimes is troublesome uh, to stay healthy in India. And I remember though that I, I had this feeling at that time that if that was my life, if my life was gonna be living 
underneath the meditation hall, underneath the temple in the Thai Vihara, I was totally happy. I felt like, okay, that would be a fine way to spend the rest of my life, living there like that. So, you know, it's, we can all think of times in our lives when we may have been in very different circumstances from what we're told we need. Mm. When we connect with the feeling of inner abundance, we discover that we don't need that much to be happy. If we ask ourselves right now, what do I need in this moment? And we discover also that by giving, by practicing generosity, that this sense of inner abundance actually increases. We feel we have something, we have enough to share. And this, this feeling of inner abundance can lead to another beautiful quality in the heart, which is that of, of feelings of gratitude, which I think I, I've noticed they arise very naturally and spontaneously out of the practice of giving. They're really different aspects of the same thing, I think. And we all have so much to be grateful for in our lives, but you know, we don't often necessarily take the time to really count our blessings, you could say. It can be so easy to see all that we lack, all that we don't have, and it's rarer that we turn our attention to all that we do have in our lives to be grateful for. I remember someone once telling me they had a practice of thinking of five things a day that they were grateful for. It can be an interesting practice to do this. And, you know, we might think, well, five a day, that's kind of a tall order, but I guess you could repeat them. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, we have a lot of things that are simple things, you know, just here now. We have food, we have shelter, it's warm in here, we have friends, we have the opportunity to hear the Dhamma. That's pretty great. We have the chance to go to a meditation retreat. How many people would even want to? And how many who want to have the chance? You know, we can take a lot of this for granted. But it can be a really great practice to actually bring to mind all that we have to be grateful for. This is uh, from, I think he's a Catholic priest, Henry Nouven. He said, in the past, I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude, gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and all I have is given to me as a gift of love, as a gift to be celebrated with joy. And it's said in the text, it said that there are two kinds of rare beings in the world. Um, one who gives or serves without expecting anything in return. And someone who is grateful towards anyone who does them a kindness. And you know, the practice of giving can take a lot of different forms. You know, materially, there can be material offerings when that's appropriate and possible, money or things that we might offer, or maybe time and energy and service is another form of giving. Even just allowing someone to be who they are 
is a great gift. It's a form of generosity. You know, sila, the gift of sila, we offer offer our ethical conduct, our sila, our commitment to non-harming. This is a huge gift. You know, this leads to one of the greatest gifts of all, which is the gift of fearlessness. The gift of fearlessness is a huge, a huge gift to the world. With this gift, we, be, we become a refuge for people, become a beacon of light for people in the world. People know they're safe with us, that we won't harm them, that we actually have their best intentions, their best interests at heart. You know, here on the retreat, we're a little bit constrained and practicing generosity in some ways, but not really. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to set off a flurry of chocolates appearing on cushions as a result of this talk, but there's a lot of ways that we can, that can be distracting and not so useful. (laughs) But there's other gifts that we give every day. We give the gift of silence here on retreat. This is incredibly rare in the world to have the possibility to be in silence like this. And the, the space that we give people to go through their process here, it's a huge gift. The support of our practice is a great support that we offer one another. And the gift of our sila, as I mentioned, we create this place of safety here that's huge in the world. There's the gift of loving kindness and compassion. The Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. He said, this is the Buddha. Giving food, one gives strength. Giving clothing, one gives beauty. Giving a vehicle, one gives ease. Giving a lamp, one gives light. But the the one who gives a residence is the giver of all. But the one who offers the Dhamma is the giver of the deathless, the gift of the path to liberation. And we all are giving this to each other here, supporting us on this journey together. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes if we look our we practice generosity, we'll see that our motivations mixed at times. There's a list of eight uh, reasons, motivations for giving that I found interesting and somewhat telling. It said one gives with annoyance as a way of offending or insulting the recipient. I thought of times when in India when I've given something to someone who's begging there mainly to get rid of them. (laughs) You know, there may have been some connection with helping them, but mostly it was to get them to go away. 
one gives motivated by fear or in return for a favor that was received in the past or in hopes of receiving a, a favor in the future. One gives because, because giving is considered to be good. And there's one that has to do directly with supporting alms mendicants. It says, I cook, they don't cook. It is proper for one who cooks to give to those who do not cook. <laughs> another reason is one gives in order to gain a good reputation, you know, to look good in the eyes of others. And then the last one is the one that's said to be the good reason. As one gives in order to adorn and beautify the mind and heart. In essence, you could say another way to put it would be that one gives in order to purify the mind of these not so beautiful qualities of greed and selfishness of clinging. Well, this doesn't mean that we should refrain from practicing generosity and until we know our motivation is entirely pure. You know, sometimes our motivations are mixed and we may have an altruistic and a good motive, but we also want to look good. We see there's a little tinge of that in there, or maybe we know it's good for us to do it, you know, so we, we aren't completely purely motivated. It's still a good thing to do. You know, it's not that the goodness or the value of the offering is somehow negated or completely lost because our motivations are, are mixed. You know, the practice is a practice. We practice in order to grow in wisdom. So we just, we bring our mindfulness to this. We see what's there and we learn from that. And as our practice deepens, then we find that, that the practice of giving, it's a natural expression in the world of, of our growing wisdom becomes this reflection of non-clinging, of non-greed. As that deepens in us, then, then this arises naturally and our, our motivations naturally become more pure. And our generous actions begin to flow from a growing connection to others, from a connection to all beings. Winnie talked about this idea of interbeing last night, so beautifully speaking about the way we're connected and it's our giving flows from this understanding. It's from the understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others is actually one and the same thing. Well, I left out some good stuff. That's how it goes. So I'll close with this uh, last, it's like a poem from the, one of those poems from the Buddha. This is from, again, from the Itivutaka. It says, one who shares his wealth with some, but does not gladly give to others, is only like a local shower. In such a way, the wise would describe him. But one who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there, out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give. This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down, refreshing water everywhere. 
drenching the highlands and the lowlands too, generous without distinctions. So let's keep sitting quietly for a minute and then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Uh, there's time now for walking meditation and chanting at 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.